0: You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you
1: doing? Not so bad. Yourself? I'm doing good. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to just expose you, man. You've got the best podcast set up now. I think you need to share with our our loyal listeners what you got going on.
0: Well, that's not fair because there are way better, 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 better podcast uh, people out there, right? I am definitely no Joe Rogan, but yeah, I've made some investments in uh, microphone and mixer. Uh, so yeah, you know, the our voices, unfortunately or fortunately, I guess depending on how you look at it, are the product. So I try to you know make sure that we sound. Uh, as palatable as, as possible if I can.
1: (laughs) Well, Jeff, I know one thing about you. This is a device journey, right? You've, you've kind of gone in and right now you've got like the entry level Tesla, but it won't be long until you're, you're driving like the, the top end with all the features enabled.
0: Yeah. I think I'm getting maybe more towards the top end at this point. You know, it's definitely, definitely some equipment purchases have been made recently uh, to up up the any, at least on my side, I think that the challenging part is we're still going over zoom. So there's only so good <laughs> that it can be as we record these. And I think we're looking at other alternatives, you know, to, to maybe kind of up everyone's sound quality, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a journey. I would say in the Tesla scheme, I'm probably sitting a, at a model three model Y performance, uh, edition. Uh, I don't I wouldn't say I'm at the S or the X or even the roadster. Um, but I'm pretty comfortable with where I'm at. I don't see any, uh, any upgrades for, for a while after what I've, what I've done uh, this last couple of weeks.
1: (laughs) All right, Jeff, more exposure. So how many cell phones do you have? Right now I only have one,
0: but I certainly will try out several throughout the year because I like to try out Android uh, as much as I can.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the investment in podcast uh, equipment, I think is, is the timing is good, right? You mentioned to me, we're up to over 2000 listens per month. I mean, Shout out not to you and I. Shout out to our listeners who keep downloading and keep reaching out to us and letting us know that they're enjoying the content. and shout out to our guests uh, for making that content fantastic. Yeah, that is pretty cool. it's It's amazing to
0: see the growth over the last you know, we're not even uh, one and a half years old, you know at this point. so we're we're somewhere in that area and yeah, the the growth has been exponential. It's been cool. Um, hopefully people are enjoying it. And if people are listening because they're forced to, I- I'll take it too. <laughs> that's fine with me. <laughs> as long as people are listening and subscribing, that's, that's what helps us. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about identity management day? Cause that's coming up. And I know that, uh, I guess by the time people listen, to this will be next week. So identity management day is April 13th. Um, that is something that Jim and I fully support. Uh, it's a great way to get recognition out there for people in the IAM space, And they're doing a lot to kind of drive awareness for it, which is fantastic. You can visit IdentityManagementDay.org for more information. And we've also got a handy little click button that I've put up on our website at IdentityAtTheCenter.com. So lots of easy ways to get into that. Jim, what are you most excited for for Identity Management Day?
1: I think for the podcast that we're going to do the day before is, is one thing that I think is exciting. So if you tune in, download on April 12th, we're going to have... Uh, Two of the the folks, I won't reveal the identities yet of those folks, but we're going to have some uh, guests who are going to from the organization sponsoring Identity Management Day, and I think it'll be an exciting listen. Yeah, it's pretty cool
0: to to get some folks who are tied into it and kind of celebrate where things are at. Uh, so that's coming up in the future. Definitely want to keep an eye out for that, and I guess mark your calendars if, if that's such a thing that people still do. Um, why don't we get into the topic for today because this is, uh, I think this is really interesting. I think we're going to have a good conversation and it's really talking about uh, workforce planning from an identity and access management perspective. And uh, we've got as a guest today, Ken Myers. He's a doctoral student at Marymount University and he's focusing on IAM workforce planning. So why don't we get into it with Ken. Hey Ken, how you doing?
2: Hey afternoon, guys, how you doing today?
0: Great. Thanks so much for joining us. We've got a lot to kind of unpack today, but we have our traditional first question. Every time someone comes on the show, we'd like to know: How did you get into the IEM space? Is it something that you chose, or did you choose it?
2: Honestly, I think it chose me. Um, Actually, I joined the Marine Corps right out of high school, so I was an enlisted Marine for almost a decade. Uh, I was in aviation communications. We're using uh, military-specific equipment, which got replaced by Cisco networking. So that was really how I got into Um, IT, and then um, I was also uh, on a special security guard program doing physical security, and actually that is where I got introduced to identity proofing, so actually that was my entrance way into uh, identity access management, so it was badging, credentialing, um, identity proofing, and then uh, after the Marine Corps, uh, I'm actually from the D.C. area, and uh, the government has a large presence, obviously, in the D.C. area. And so I did uh, predominantly a lot of government contracting and a lot of policy work around um, identity and access management and uh, for workforce identities with the government. And um, I mean, right now I'm an IT specialist with the General Services Administration. And if you're not familiar with the General, General Services Administration, it's a, uh, it's a US federal government agency that, uh, that uh, manages and provides government-wide services uh, predominantly to the U.S. federal government, but also to state and local agencies. So if you think about public buildings, uh, commodity services like IT services, uh, but also a lot of coordination around the government. So, for example, if the uh, um, Office of uh, Management and Budget comes out with a policy, uh, usually uh, GSA is the one that helps um, coordinate it, depending on what what the scope of it is. But that's, that was my entry point into uh, identity access management.
0: So it sounds like you're definitely coming at it more from – the, the operation side of things. And I think the GSA is pretty interesting. I, I guess the way that in my, in my simple brain, I kind of think of it as a shared service for the government. Would that be fair?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty close. Um, uh, I mean, it's interesting that the GSA is uh, the, the only government agency that, that's allowed to offer uh, government-wide um, contracts. So, uh, you know, if you think it from, um, like the uh, private sector, right? If you think about enterprise IT services are usually run out of an IT shop. You know, consolidating and saving money. That's really what the GSA is trying to do is save government money.
0: I know that one of the things that comes up as part of uh, the work you're working on is, is is this concept of ICAM or Identity Credential and Access Management. Is that basically the same thing as IAM and just the government spin on it? Or is that something that's that's different?
2: <laughs> that's actually, that's a good question. I mean, something I've noticed in the government space is they love sticking an, an F in front of acronyms. So like ICAM or FICAM, federal. ICAM or federal, something else. But yeah, I mean, ICAM is just another another way of saying IDM with the focus on the C part, which is the credential part. So within the government, um, they issue a, a, a PKI-based smart card called a, a personal identity verification card, um, the PIV card. And that's been like the scope, um, the scope of uh, government identities for a long time. So very little difference between um, ICAM and IAM. Really.
0: It still boils down to who has access to what, right? Yeah. and <laughs> make sure that's appropriate.
1: So Ken, um, I think it's fascinating that you're working on your doctorate. We've had um past doctoral candidates. We had David Dewey with the Open Measures Project, who was working on his doctorate. Um he uh he was back in episode, I'm just looking at my notes, episode 62 for those folks who want to go back and listen. We've had Dr. Chase Cunningham on uh and it's funny because I always like to say this person's a PhD, kind of jokingly, this person's a PhD in access management or something like that, because I think that indicates like expertise, deep um, focus on a specific area. And I'm wondering kind of what is it that you're working on? What are you researching specifically within your doctorate? And then maybe you can walk us through what that, that whole process looks like.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um So actually the the doctoral process of writing a dissertation is honestly pretty similar to what writing a white paper or any other kind of research writing, right? You identify a gap, uh, you look at existing work around it. Um, I mean, hopefully you can find peer reviewed sources. And usually in those papers, it may list gaps in their own research um, and then from there, you can pretty much combine existing knowledge to create new knowledge. I mean, that's really what it is, is you're creating new knowledge, you're furthering the space. Um, one of the interesting things I found when I was researching um, identity access management um, for peer-reviewed papers uh, was in the last decade, the majority of papers I found were all about uh, federated identities using federation protocols. The, uh the security around using Federation assertions. Um, and then more recently, I would say decentralized identities. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Um, you think, I'm wondering, does that fall in, in line with your mind of where the latest identity and access management research should be? You know what, I'm I'm seeing a
1: lot of um, new models around using artificial intelligence and, and kind of tying New, you know, new capabilities in that space back to IAM. So looking at behavior and how do you apply that to say somebody's acting abnormally and then kicking off the process. So to me, that's one of the areas that I find would be um really interesting to, to research. But I think the use case that you're talking about is that's one that's here and now, and almost everybody that we work with or talk to; they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis is dealing with the federated identity model. Jeff, what are your thoughts? The goal here, right, is to
0: have as few as logons as possible, right? Get the single sign-on, and federation definitely comes into that. I think companies still struggle a little bit, um, depending on where they're at from a maturity standpoint of external federation, allowing external IDPs into their organization, which. Sounds very cool in theory, but I think there is a lot of, you know, sometimes angst and the, 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 desire to have control right over some of these accounts and what they get access to. But I'm starting to see some inroads with that. And, and certainly on the decentralized identity, you know, I think, you know, we've, we've, we've constantly talked a little bit about, about blockchain and identity, and I have yet to see a, a good enterprise use case. I definitely see more of a use case in the public sector, especially things around government, uh, you know, citizen type type functions. You know, maybe academia or health, those types of areas. But still searching for something on the enterprise side that where where a decentralized identity makes sense. And maybe that's just not the right way to to
2: look at it. So I would say two two things. <laughs> two things that that uh, tripped me up while I was doing my research was the uh, using the right words. Right. Uh, similar in, in the government space, they say ICAM. Outside the government, they say IAM. They say Uh, federated identity management or FIM, right? There's lots of different words. Um, So that was was the first thing. Uh, To your second point, uh, part of the dissertation process is uh, identifying gaps, Um, identifying gaps and then um, figuring out which one is the most interesting and most feasible to research from that perspective. So if it checks both of those boxes, you know you might have a winner. Um, And so I came up really with six topics. Um, Decentral identities wasn't really one of them, honestly. One was looking at um, identity frameworks and models in other countries and seeing how effective they are. Uh, So, for example, in Canada, they have a a pan-identity framework, um, which was interesting. Uh, Japan uses kind of like a bridge PKI model for national identities. You have the EID in Europe. Uh, You have the, I think it's ADVAR um, in India. And so each one has their own kind of characteristics that fit within their culture. So it was almost like a, a cultural study of how identity is used um, in other parts of in other parts of the world, which was interesting. That one was a little hard to research. <laughs> so one, one topic and the topic that I picked, which was close to home, which I, I find uh, as a major challenge as an identity professional is finding uh, good identity and access management uh, people to, to join my team. Right. And, uh, you know, a classic example is an entry-level cyber analyst with 10 years of experience in a CISSP, right? I mean, have you guys seen that too? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yep.
2: So one of the areas I actually worked, uh, I worked in heavily was public key infrastructure. And it was always a challenge finding a public key infrastructure person because it seemed like public key infrastructure experience always came after 20 years of something else, right? So uh, my research topic is developing an identity and access management competency model. Uh, It's focused on the U.S. federal government to hire, train, and retain identity and access management professionals. And uh, even though I'm tailoring it to the U.S. federal government, there's very little difference in how the government implements identity with the private sector. I mean, the minor differences might be, you know, which security framework or which methodology is implemented, but it's still, you know, you need to uh, verify your identity you they need to access something they need to be authorized to access it i mean the principles are pretty much the same across the board
1: i think it's a really interesting um really interesting topic because on one hand you've got the federal government is of uh, the us seems to be one of the richest targets for hackers right so you have the highest need to have cybersecurity and IAM professionals, and on the other hand, I think government has a reputation for paying the lowest. <laughs> and maybe that's not the maybe that maybe that's not the way it is anymore. But more that you have kind of lifelong security and you have a, a fantastic pension plan, great benefits, but that the pay is less than maybe what you get in the corporate environment. And I've always wondered how the government goes about um, get attracting, retaining that talent. And kind of in my mind, the life cycle has been you bring in people early um, and you know, people who are kind of smart people maybe have some base level of, of skills and kind of build them up. And that you're hoping that they get kind of locked into that big picture of, um, hey, I, you know, I've got a great pension program here. It's really good life that I built. And now you have somebody who's got that experience and is going to stick with uh, your organization over the long term. I don't know if what I said there is like totally false or, but at least that's the impression that I've gotten.
2: Yeah, I would say, I mean, the reason why I, I decided to uh, focus specifically on the federal government is one, um, another aspect of finishing a dissertation is having it scoped in a way that you can finish it, right? And that's based on, you, you usually pick your scoping on available resources. Now, luckily uh, the U.S. government, uh, all of their workforce planning documentation is publicly available. So that makes it easy to see uh, how one industry, one sector looks at cyber workforce planning, um, You know, outside of the government, and uh, you may find specific or you may find guidance for specific industries, but it's not as readily available as maybe going to the Office of Personal Management, searching for cybersecurity workforce and seeing that they have a strategy right there. I, um, In my research, I, I had difficulty finding a similar strategy tailored to an industry um, in the, in the same manner
1: what is the what does the decision process look like in terms of when you want to build a team with employees versus using a a contractor?
2: I mean, obviously, I would say in general, right? not government specific, but also in the private sector, you know uh, looking at what knowledge you want retained within the organization. So usually you know your hire, your enterprise architects, your program managers they may be employees of the company or, or the agency because they have the knowledge and the vision to implement um, what the executives want to do. And then it could just be based on uh, price or talent, right? Uh, what is the, you know, what what is the most optimal path to implementing that executive's goal, that um, corporate mission that you're trying to achieve? Is it, you know, uh, paying a little bit more and getting short-term resources to achieve it faster, or is it more of a long-term, we're going to hire some full-time employees uh, to be able to maintain it?
1: Right. So that sounds very very similar to kind of how corporations um, approach that same problem.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's, I think, by necessity, right? If you can't find uh, employees, then <laughs> either the work doesn't get done, right, and you, and you just don't have it take, taken care of, or um, yeah, you look in the, into the non-employee market, whatever that looks like, contractors, vendors, et cetera, right. To bring in, uh, those types of resources to, to help get things going rather than waiting around. Um, you know, I think this is, it's, it's an interesting topic because workforce planning, when it comes to the IAM side of things can mean so much. Um, and it's a lot of work, right? I know you're doing it for, for the, you know, dissertation. Um, you know, what is the other effort that kind of puts, this in front of it as well. You know, I think, I think of things like organizations who have a challenge with trying to find those resources, how do they articulate, you know, what are they looking for? So, you know, you can say PKI, right. And then some HR person is going to have to probably do the first pass and screening and somewhere there's going to be a disconnect, right. So helping write job descriptions that make sense, for example, might help with the effort of that. Are there other things that, that, um, you know, that could be playing a part for that?
2: Yeah, definitely. Actually, um, within the United States, so there's a, a public private partnership uh, through the National um, Institute for Science and Technology, or NIST, uh, called the National Initiative for Cyber Education, or NICE, NIST. <laughs> NIST NICE is the acronym there. Uh, and that actually came out a couple of years ago, and, and their mission was to uh, create a, a workforce uh, a plan that identified Specific work roles, identify tasks, knowledge, um, and capabilities or uh, abilities. And uh, what I found was within the NIST NICE, it called out uh, specific identity and access management tasks, but they were spread out across multiple work roles. Uh, which, and, you know, if you take a step back and you look at it, that's really how the industry views identity and access management, right? Um, they see it as an important piece to security. But it's it's just a part of everything. I mean, have you noticed that as well?
0: Yeah, it's so it's so important we don't dedicate anyone to it, right? You wear <laughs> multiple hats. You know, it's right. a foundational part of security. But, you know, I think this is something that, you know, we're starting to see, you know, experts and specialists in IEM field. And usually they're part of, you know, an InfoSec group um, or at least have an InfoSec background, you know, to some degree. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is it's, – it's always a challenge of – trying to justify headcount is always an issue, right? Especially in the times that we're in now, which I, I hate that phrase in the times we live in, but (laughs) it is a reality of the, of the situation where a lot of organizations have contracted over the last year due to the pandemic and, you know, budgets are tight. So trying to unwind that I think will be relatively slow. Um, I don't see this massive, okay, the pandemic's over and now everyone's back to work. Right. I think organizations have now lived with it for a year and, it probably does mean people wearing multiple hats and that sometimes includes identity and access management work. It may be split off split between, you know, a bunch of different groups. Is it ideal? No, but this is the world we live in and it's, it's never ideal. (laughs) So um, I think it's, I think it's just a reality of, of how IEM staffing works.
2: Yeah. I mean that, and that was pretty apparent from some of the peer reviewed papers that I've looked at and also some of the challenges that I identified. So, the 2020 Verizon uh, Data Breach Investigations Report, right? Uh, two out of the top three breaches were uh, credential theft and, th- and um, phishing. I mean, in my mind, both of those are related to identity access management, right? And the, the way you usually uh, mitigate those is through multi-factor authentication or MFA. Now, who is implementing that MFA, right? Is it an identity access management person? or is it someone, is it like a, a developer because the developer maintains the platform and then you just load a module on there. So it's really is that, I mean, that's kind of one of the research questions I'm looking at is what, <laughs> what, what is the chicken and what is the egg? Are the vulnerabilities due to people not trained on identity and access management, or is it that we don't have identity and access uh, professionals doing identity and access management work? Um, I mean, something else, I mean, recently, Right, zero trust is real big. You see a lot of companies and vendors specifically talking about zero trust. Talk about identity as the new perimeter. Uh, identity, uh, identity governance is mentioned in the NIST uh, 800-207 as an approach to zero trust. Um, I mean, have y'all have y'all heard of this this uh, new phrase? Identity is the new perimeter, too.
0: I've heard this new phrase: uh, identity at the center. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're at the center and the perimeter.
0: It's the only thing really that's constant, right? I mean, people shift locations all the time. The only thing that's not, well, not changing is people, right? But people change. But yeah, that's where we see a lot of structure and guidance now around is how do you protect the person and the resource? And that's, I think, where Zero Trust comes in very well is you can't always assume that people on your network are good, right? And yep. And uh, that's where you want to make sure you've got the right access controls in place and and so forth.
1: Yeah, I mean, two of the things that we like to say all the time, right, is one, hackers don't break in, they log in. And when you're talking about that zero trust, the identity is the new perimeter, what is that all about? Is that just because somebody's on the inside of the firewall doesn't mean they're safe. I think it was the Verizon data breach report where we got the stat that roughly a third of all breaches the main actor is an internal actor. Um, that that doesn't even get to the idea that the external actor eventually gets into the network. So really identity is at the center. It really is the perimeter because the perimeter breaks down and it it certainly is still important, but it can't be relied on as the main or the only control.
2: Yeah, I mean, and to just point earlier, you know, from workforce planning perspective, I mean, this kind of squarely falls on the in the human resources area. So that's definitely one of the, the main stakeholder groups that I'm looking at. Uh, so the three angles I'm taking with my research is look at peer-reviewed papers, specifically on cyber workforce planning. Um, and it's kind of interesting to point out that uh, a couple of that I've found uh, highlight the, uh, the difference between a, an academic-trained cybersecurity person and the needs of an organization. And there's usually like a disconnect. So if, you, <laughs> if you've if you looked at um, <clears throat> like a, a, a job openings or job postings for identity access management or even cybersecurity people, you might see a line, a certification line in there, right? They're looking for a CISSP, a CISM or a CEH, right? A, a certified ethical hacker. And if you're familiar with all three of those, they are very different. So it's like, I'm just gonna throw some acronyms out there and see what I can, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see what I can get, right? And same thing from the, the degree side. At least now, it seems like uh, companies are recognizing experience without a degree. And there's the variety of degrees that would fall within that, right? Some of the ones I've seen, uh, cybersecurity, which is relatively new, but you know if you remember information assurance, information security, IT management, or even uh, business management, right? such a wide, a wide variety of knowledge. And between those, it's kind of interesting. Um I mean, from from y'all's experience, have you noticed the same? Have you noticed like a difference between certifications that you're asking for or even uh, academic education?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is actually, I have some personal history with this because I went to college for a liberal arts degree. And when I was in my third year of college about, I realized, I'm going to get into computers. Well, it was a little too late to start over. So I finished out my liberal arts degree. And then I went and got a job where I was working on computers. And I worked and got my Microsoft certification. This was before the days of Active Directory to to kind of date myself here. Uh, But I remember talking to my mother-in-law who said, you need to go back and get a computer science degree. She was an HR professional, right? But the reality of it was was that there's a shift taking place, and you could learn just as much going through the certification programs about a specific technology, which is usually what organizations are looking for is people who really know something uh, specific. And certification was a great way to go about doing that, right? you, you know, universities are, are so expensive to go back and, and redo my degree, in computer science would have been such a major effort such a major expense I was able to get into an enterprise IT environment doing the microsoft networking stuff it was hot at the time and it let me learn how enterprise computing took place right and then you kind of move laterally or move up you take different opportunities and then you build a career that way so to me you know you need to get you need to kind of arm yourself with whatever makes sense right i'm not i'm not saying a degree isn't valuable certainly if you know if you're starting college right now and you're interested in computers i would recommend computer science or information technology or even something more specific but if you're if you didn't go that route i wouldn't say it's too late right get your foot in the door find opportunities manage projects um learn whatever technologies you can to kind of position yourself so that then you can continue to gather certifications, continue to build your resume, and become that valuable, that valuable resource. Yeah, and I think this
0: is where uh, you know Jim and I are a little bit of an odd couple.
1: <laughs> we we come from different
0: backgrounds, and we've talked about this before on on the show. But you know, I started off in restaurants, right? So I was you know a busboy, a server, a bartender, barman, you know, bar manager. You know, did all that stuff, and I did that for a long time before I really got into IT. And I started off in a help desk and, you know, that was my my first taste of IT and kind of moved up and over into information security and then moved into specifically, you know, IAM as part of that role. But, um, you know, I, I went to college for, I think, a total of I don't know, maybe 30 days (laughs) before I decided it wasn't for me. Um, You know, I I think I I aced an economics test and then uh, stopped going. uh, And I think I ended up with one college credit for economics with, you know, just passing (laughs) that one. That was it. Um, But I knew very early on that, you know, formal formal training and education really wasn't where I was going to be the most successful. Um, And it's not that I'm a bad student or anything like that. I mean, I I did fine in high school and all that good stuff. It's just the college life wasn't for me. So I entered the workforce right away. And um, I've basically learned everything that I know on the job and self-study and tinkering. And I've always been, you know, the guy building the computers on their own. And, you know, I remember my dad giving me a, you know, it's like, well, you bought Wing Commander. This would have been back in the, I guess, the early 90s. Uh, we're on floppy disk at this point. And, you know, if I wanted to play it, I had to figure out how to make it work, which meant building a computer, installing Visa drivers and figuring out the difference between, you know, the different types of x86 processors and whether I had the DX with a math coprocessor, which was awesome, right? And meant I could have better frame rates. And I remember I spent eight hours installing Wing Commander on that machine. It was so slow. And I was so excited, and that was kind of, it hooked me. So I had that background. I just didn't have the formal education. And, you know, my personal uh, philosophy and mission has been, well, let's see how, how far I can get without needing, you know, a college degree or, you know, in some cases, some specific, um, you know, certifications. I do have Security Plus. Uh, my, my good friend, Bert Carroll, made me get that at one of my previous roles. Uh, but, you know, it's definitely been, it's been an interesting ride and I, I have definitely seen just over the course of my lifetime and my career people shifting away and organizations shifting away from must have college degree you know and can't have the job otherwise too i'm seeing way more job descriptions that are you know college or you know college degree or equivalent experience and i think that's heartening for a lot of people uh, who are looking to get in the space is yeah you know you can you can definitely start somewhere and as long you know my philosophy for hiring is you know, I can train a lot of knowledge, what I can't train is attitude. Yep. It's a lot easier to bring in people who have the right attitude, willing to learn, willing to be part of a team uh, than someone who might be a rock star and a genius, but is difficult to work with, right? There's, there's that, there's that balance that you have to kind of strike there. So uh, Jim and I are very much the odd couple when it comes to, <laughs> at least from, from, a, from, 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 for more reasons than one, but definitely the, the educational background. What about yourself, Ken? What are you seeing?
2: Um, you know, it's, it's pretty typical, with tip, pretty typical with both, both Uh, what you all said. I mean, uh, I mean, I've seen, I mean, both people with no academic education with, you know, lots of experience, great people uh, with certifications to back it up. Um, I mean, I have a combination of both. And honestly, (laughs) honestly, when I was in high school, I studied uh, um, auto mechanics. I wanted to be a Formula One engineer, right? My first job out of high school, I was a, uh, I changed oil. I changed oil and washed cars at a car dealership here and I went to community college for a mechanical engineering degree. And uh, my first math class, uh, I failed it. I was like, yeah, you know, maybe engineering isn't the best for me. Uh, and then I joined the Marine Corps and uh, I ended up getting a bachelor's and a master's uh, while I was in the Marine Corps, more from peer pressure with the uh, other other people I lived with. They were all getting their degrees and the Marine Corps was paying for it. So I was like, hey, you know, why not? You know, um, and actually that was one of the main thing my parents said, you know, I don't I don't care what you're going to do with your life, but at least have a college degree so you can fall back on it. So that was like, you know, my upbringing, but it's, I mean, it's interesting to see uh, uh, the the research done in cybersecurity academics in that, um, you know, if you want to think about like a pipeline perspective, right, where you're training the future workforce uh, from an academic perspective, uh, the majority of cybersecurity programs start off as master's. And then they slowly kind of funnel, uh, funnelled down into uh, mass um, bachelor programs, but there's actually a, a cybersecurity curriculum um, from a consortium of uh, ACM and IEEE that cover pretty much uh, the same domains of the CISSP. And within that, and again, another interesting point is that you know identity and access management it seems to be always included somewhere, somewhere in some type of cybersecurity training. Um, but it's never like at the forefront. But I think, I mean, in my mind, and you guys, you can, you can tell me if you feel the same way. I mean, today it seems more important than everything. And, you know, not just, uh, I mean, not just in, in companies, but if you think about a, a uh, customer experience perspective, right? If you're thinking user experience as a consumer myself, I'm going to go buy something. You know, if I have a horrible experience logging in. If I have a horrible experience, uh, you know, trying to get information, right? That that's an identity and access management challenge. I um, mean, I noticed that as a consumer. I mean, also, you know, seeing how companies implement uh, MFA, and how some may do M- um, uh, SMS, some may do uh, an app. You know, a lot, a lot now are seem to be uh, adopting web Authent, but it definitely seems like uh, you know, it's it's a growing it's a growing uh, user experience issue, also. I mean, have y'all y'all seen the same thing?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's something that has changed over the course of, like I said, of, you know, our own our own lives as we've gone through this. Um, I do see, you know, if, I, I think I probably would have stuck with school if there had been, you know, the cybersecurity first approach that was out there. I mean, I had some IT classes and, you know, I'm in, you know, I was frankly over those IT classes already, but wasn't allowed to test out. And it was like that was kind of disheartening. It was like, okay, well. I already, I've already built a computer when I was eight years old, right? But I don't need to know how to run DOS because I'm already running programs and things like that. Um, but if there had been something that was more specific to information security, that probably would have helped me out um, and stick with the college side of things. And, you know, every once in a while, you know, I get the itch and, you know, I'll look on, you know, the subreddit for, you know, hacking or whatever it may is. There's a lot of good information, you know, out there and watch videos and things like that just to see how things are done uh, to understand it. And I've taken more of the role of you know, more on the strategy side of things, so less fingers on keyboards, but you do have to know that kind of thing. So however you get that, get that exposure, I think is good. Um, And there are certainly different ways that you can prove that out for people who are prospective, you know, um, employers. So I think of things like certifications from on the identity management side, Uh, There's Identity Management Institute. They have several that are out there. And we've had Henry Bagdasarian on the show before. And, you know, there's a lot of work they're doing on that. I know that the ID Pro uh, organization is working on one right now. um, And that'll be something to to look forward to, you know, hopefully later this year uh, as something that people can kind of take back. Uh, But yeah, I think there has been a shift towards more information security focused. I don't know if I've seen specific identity focused at the academic level. It's usually a component, right, somewhere of, 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 of information security. Um, and frankly, you know, I think some people, they get away with just being dangerous enough, right? They just know enough to be dangerous and kind of understand it. And unless you're truly specializing in identity and access management, Um, there are so many more other ways that you could take an information security approach. And I think that's where some of these other uh, certifications and other kind of training programs um, are helpful to kind of demonstrate that. And frankly, a lot of it comes with experience, too, right? Just understanding what works in in the real world and uh, going from there. Jim, what are your thoughts?
1: I think my thoughts, first off, on what Kim was saying about, you know, identity often being your first touch point with an organization is right on. it led me to led me to thinking about you know this whole topic of workforce planning, which is that you need folks at different levels, right? You need that that strategy view, but a lot of times when you get to that level within your organization or that level within your career, you lose touch with like how to get it onto the screen and actually make things happen, right? And so when I think about workforce planning, it's what are all the layers. What are all the specialties that I need to put together? And this is probably not that much different with IM than it is with any other um, any other discipline within the organization. But you know, with that context or with that in mind, you know, Ken, how should organizations be approaching the workforce planning? Is it is it only something that big organizations need to do? Um and then specifically within that, like um, you know, how how should they go about approaching workforce planning?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh workforce planning is yeah, it's definitely a challenge, you know. Uh resources available. I mean, specifically in cybersecurity, yeah, I mentioned the NIST NICE framework. Uh so that is actually it's it's the the go-to resource within the federal government, but again, it is a uh Public private, a um, uh, public private project. So they actually, if you go to the NIST Nice website, and I, I can share the link with you, uh, you can see information tailored for uh, private organizations, for um, for companies. Uh, you'll see tailored information for educators. Uh, so how can you how can you build uh, cybersecurity education programs around NIST Nice? Uh, if you're a company, how can you? Uh, uh, Write job descriptions where you you have a fairly uh, fairly high degree of certainty you'll find who you're looking for and actually the NIST NICE they just published a new version that's more flexible than the first version so I had mentioned you know NIST NICE had defined work roles um, the second version now is is more flexible in that you can kind of build your own roles based on common skills so it's kind of like a plug and play type thing and I think that was one of the challenges with the first version. So, for example, um, there was uh, seven categories that aligned with the cybersecurity framework. If you're familiar with the cybersecurity framework, so that you could build your team based on the security methodology you're trying to implement. And I think that's like that's a great idea. You know, it's uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm someone that likes seeing alignment. You know, like uh, it, it kind of makes sense. So, definitely from a workforce planning perspective you know, work with, don't only work with your executives, but also work with your architects and your engineers who are actually implementing it. Um, you know, it's, I think it's fairly common that, uh, you know, you pass your requirements along to an HR person um, and then they put them up. Nothing nothing on an HR person's fault. They're doing their job fantastically. But sometimes, you know, uh, you you submit for something, you know, submit for a, a specific skill that you need and you sometimes you don't always get it. So I think it's a collaboration Um, within your organization to make sure that you're hiring uh, the people, the people and the skills that you need. Um, So Jeff, I mean, you had mentioned, you know, some of the uh, workforce models and architectures also ID pro and their body of knowledge, I think is a a fantastic starting point for anyone who wants to learn more about identity access management. Um, So specifically why, again, why I focused or scoped my work or my research to the U S federal government is they had um, so the Obama administration, they wrote a federal cybersecurity warfare strategy in 2016, They have four initiatives in it. And one of them was actually to implement the NIST-NICE. So that's you know that's clear public information. I can see the you know, direction of an organization. Um, <clears throat> if we're talking reference architectures to implement identity and access management, uh, you have the federal identity credential and access management architecture. So within that, there's five identity service areas. And um, at least what I plan to do with my research is um, map <laughs> map work roles uh, back to the reference architecture. So pretty much the same alignment that you would have if you implemented the cybersecurity or the uh, the cybersecurity framework and then this nice roles, you could have the same thing in that uh, you're trying to implement the specific identity architecture and you're looking for specific skill sets to implement it. Um, from looking around and just my personal knowledge, I haven't found any kind of uh, public available identity reference architectures. And it's possible I'm just not you know, looking in the right places. I mean, can, can you all think of any or have you used uh, refer- identity reference architectures in the past that you could recommend?
0: Yeah, I think it's something that is generally – it's almost too generic, I think, for some organizations because it's – it's who has access to what, right? And it's here are your actors, here are the data points and the systems that they're going to get access to, and what are the workflows bet- between them? And then you try to layer on top of it, what are the technologies that assist with whatever it may be? Um, I don't know if there is necessarily a, a reference architecture that is handy, <laughs> for lack of a better <laughs> word, right? I mean, they're all pretty much the same thing. I know that you know for some of the work that Jim and I do, right? we have some of those, those details as we go into it. But usually when we're working in an organization, the reference architecture is really only the first start is the first part of it. Right. It's it's OK. How do we make this specific to our organization? Because every organization is different. Right. You may have active directory. You may not. Right. You, we've worked with organizations that don't have AD. Somehow they get along. They have LDAP and they have other ways to get around, you know, having that common directory. Uh, and they may have hundreds of applications or, you know, only a few or be in the cloud or be on prem only. I, I think I think the concept probably makes sense, but I don't know if if um, you know beyond that how helpful it truly is in the real world. But again, that's just my opinion. Jim, do you have any thoughts on it? You know, they've
1: got some some uh, documents over at the Identity Defined Security Alliance. They've kind of defined a framework, but I don't know that it necessarily would qualify as a reference architecture. But I think it's a it's a great starting point for anybody who's doing research especially in the corporate environment um doing research in terms of kind of best practices and a framework for managing identity um you know whenever we're talking about a reference architecture my mind goes to vendor specific because i think a lot of vendors want to put out that picture of how a reference architecture can be built around or how an architecture can be built around their uh, their technology. So it's proprietary in that way. And I think there still can be a lot of great information clean from that. Um, and then to kind of go for the the non-vendor look, you know, organizations like IDSA, ID Pro. Um, I think those are, are really good starting points. How do, um,
0: I mean, you've got a lot of work in front of you, Ken. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, is there anything that our listening audience can do to, help or contribute to the work that you're doing?
2: Yeah. Yeah, actually. um, I mean, the best contribution would be, I I plan to post my research as I get it done um, on my GitHub site. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in seeing how my research is going, if you want to offer comments, if you want to offer ideas, you know, point me in directions, provide other resources. I mean, that's great. Um, I mean, I truly believe, I mean, I'm a lifelong learner (laughs) myself, you know, Uh, And I feel like you have to be that in in cybersecurity and uh, identity access management specifically, right? And it's interesting that that specific gap, right, the the evolving environment uh, is also identified in a couple of uh, uh, peer-reviewed studies in that there's this duality of being an accredited program, meaning, you know, you, you take that point in time of what your program is to get accredited. But between that point in time and your uh the you know ongoing, how much how much can change? Like if we think back in the past year of what happened in cybersecurity, right? The thing right now in my mind that stands out the most is uh, uh like solar, the solar winds and how that led to uh you know, <laughs> golden the golden SAML attacks and the uh you know almost misunderstanding of how federated trusts work. I mean, not just uh, to to your point of, you know, ex- accepting external identities, but also within your own architectures, like within your own organization architecture of how windows force trucks work, traversing the domains. Um, I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, how can, how can you pack that up in a class and teach uh, you know, undergraduates or even you know graduate students. That in the time that it happened, you know. Yeah,
1: I think the solar wind's attack, or this what we what we've been calling it, a solar gate. Um, yeah, it seems like it's a little bit foreseeable, right? I mean, you have a third party that pushes software to a platform that you create a service account. I mean, not. I'm not saying that I foresaw it coming, but it doesn't seem like that kind of method of attack would be so unforeseen that maybe we haven't already been talking about it. But I think that's kind of human nature, right? Is sometimes you actually have to face a crisis in order to say, hey, a crisis exists.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, Ken, if you've got that GitHub link, I'll put that into the show notes so people can get to it. And, uh, I think it will be interesting at some point, you know, once you're done, maybe to, to take, to circle back and, and see where you end up with this. Cause I, this is an area that, that I find interesting just for my own personal journey and, you know, the, the crossroads and and decisions that I've had to make to, to get where I am. Um, I know we've been running a little bit longer than we normally do. So, um, we'll go ahead and start to close things up for, for this week. Uh, but before we do that, uh, Ken, any final thoughts that you want to throw out there for the folks who are listening?
2: Yeah. Final thoughts. Um, yeah, just with with dissertations, it, it's great to see them actually being used. So that's like my intent that I will uh, come up with this amazing identity access management workforce planning, and then everyone implements it, right? But um, yeah, I mean it's best to see your research uh, in practice. You know, not everything can be a Google, but uh, seeing if it can help someone, you know, that that helps me sleep at night. So appreciate it and thank you everyone for listening to see who's interested in helping
0: another contribution to the overall I am body of knowledge. So that hopefully <laughs> we'll make it into the ID pro one as well. Uh, Jim, how about yourself? Any final thoughts?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the big takeaway for me or that I want to make sure that people here, because we, I think our podcast is listened to by I am practitioners across the spectrum and even people who are interested in getting into this field. You look at the three of us and how we all got into I am and it's different. And every week we have a different guest on and it seems like they've got a different story about how they got into IAM. Some of us you know, kind of went through a certain college path. Others started on the help desk. Others joined the military and kind of found their way into this field. What I would say is that there's no one right way to do it. But if you want to get into this field, it's very possible. There are some things like certifications, some education, things like that. But I think that what really, you know, will set you apart in your career is real world opportunity or real world experience. So get those opportunities to get your foot in the door um, and working on identity management projects and then go that extra mile, you know, work those extra hours or whatever it takes to kind of show that you actually care because I think what Jeff said is spot on in I am and everything else, which is you can't teach attitude. Go in there with the right attitude, you know set yourself apart be willing to work the extra go the extra mile, work the extra hours whatever it takes and you'll build a career in this industry. Well, I think that's a good spot that we can
0: close it out for this week and I think that's all we've've we've, I think we've beaten this one pretty good so um, we'll go ahead and call it um, Don't forget identity management day April 13th identitymanagementday.org. Um, There will be a bunch of links in the show notes uh, for this episode, Ken's GitHub. um, We'll have uh, LinkedIn connections, you know, for Ken, Jim, and myself. I'll have some things around ICAM and NIST Nice to make it easy for people to find. And uh, with that, uh, don't forget you can visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com. We're on Twitter at IDACpodcast. And thanks for listening, and we'll talk with you all in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.